Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I'm fascinated by things that people allegedly said at the moment of their death, the last words which were spoken. I did a little research and found out like Winston Churchill, for instance, said, I'm bored with it all. Sounds like Churchill, doesn't it? And then also Frank Sinatra, I know you're dying to hear what he said. He said, I'm losing it. That probably was a true confession because he did not know Jesus from anyone's perspective that knew him well, knew he did not. And we know what Jesus said in his call to discipleship, if anyone wishes to save his life, he shall lose it. He was losing it. Didn't have any hope going out into eternity without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Marie Antoinette, remember her most famous words, let them eat cake? talking about the hoi polloi, the people who really were of no significance and were beyond her concern as the queen of France. And when she was about to be beheaded, she was asked for her last words and she says, pardon me, sir, I did not mean it. Hopefully she was talking to the Lord when she said that. And then Bessie Smith, some of you may know the name Bessie Smith. She was a great jazz singer of yesteryear. And when she was dying, she says, I'm going. I'm going in the name of Jesus. I like that one best of all. Phenomenal. She knew the Lord, evidently. When we come to this section of Scripture, these are not Jesus' last words. Those are in the form of seven things which he said from the cross before he was crucified. And he had some other things, of course, to say in his post-resurrection body. But this is the teaching which Jesus gave to his apostles. Remember what has happened recently. Just a matter of a few minutes perhaps have passed when he says to Judas, go and do what you do and do it quickly. The apostles perhaps had some inkling but not necessarily because they were asking each other, is it I, is it I? They were wondering about themselves as if maybe they could be betraying Jesus. It horrified them to think that that might be the case. But let's look at something Jesus says that we looked at recently from John chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. This is the beginning of what is commonly called the upper room discourse. These are Jesus' words to his apostles and by association, his words to us. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And it's just as relevant to us what Jesus says in this passage as it would have been to the apostles. In verse 31, the scripture says, quoting Jesus, now 
is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you again also, where I am going, you cannot go. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Let your heart not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. When Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, he put his finger on the concern of all mankind and the need of every human being. We need a heart that is a quiet heart. The word translated troubled is a word which would communicate a stirred up heart, a trembling heart, a shuddering heart. Stop letting your heart be troubled. This is the state that these men found their hearts in, and for good reason. Let's think about their relationship to Jesus. Three or so years prior to this, he interacted with them and called them to follow him. But prior to that, their lives were rather routine, mundane, rather average for a Jewish male. And all of a sudden, Jesus calls them one by one to follow him. And rather than being ordinary men, they became somebody from their perspective because of their association with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Peter and John came before the Sanhedrin, they were called on the carpet by the leaders of Israel and told never to preach the name of Christ again. And they said to them, sir, sirs, we cannot help but tell about our Savior and our Lord and what He's done for us and what He's come to do for mankind. In essence, to bring tranquility to the hearts of mankind. To give the possibility to us to not be in an uproar internally in our hearts. And when they dismissed them temporarily, they began to consult with each other about what they should do with them. And one in their midst said this about them, they are ordinary, uneducated men. But by their association with Jesus, you notice what they said, but they knew that they had, they had been with Jesus. They were like Christ because of their association with Him. Here's the good news for you and me today. We are a part, as individuals, of a world that's in turmoil. Would you agree? This world is in a chaotic situation. You may have some form of chaos in your personal life that overshadows and overrules your concerns about the world crisis that we find ourselves in. You may have some kind of economic upheaval challenge in your life. Maybe you're a person who is dealing with a health problem and you wish you could get well, and you've done everything you know to get well without good results, and you've resigned yourself to being where you are instead of finding a way to flourish in the middle of that difficulty. I was reading this week, and half of the people, adult people in the United States, have high blood pressure. 
Now it's interesting how over time, what was considered normal is borderline anymore. When I grew up, 120 over 80 was you're good to go, right? And now it's no telling how low it's gonna go now, maybe 100 over 60, I don't know, before you're healthy. And then they'll say you got low blood pressure. And I was reading this week about how getting out and exercising is dangerous in this heat to your blood pressure. So you need to drink a lot of water and not exert yourself. But at the same time, you do need to get your heart rate up. It's really confusing, isn't it, all these things that we read? But it is concerning, isn't it, these things related to our health, related to our relationships, for sure, relating to the economy. All these things create a lot of turmoil in our heart. I would be willing to bet, if I were a betting man, that many of you came here today with a heart that is shuddering and trembling and in trouble. And you came hoping for some relief. Well, the good news is the Lord Jesus has an answer for our hearts that are in such a situation. But before we look at the answers that he gives as to how that might work, let's consider some of the alternatives that the world gives to us. And remember, who is in control of the world? Satan is the ruler of this world. And consequently, he is the master of deception. And the world doesn't have any answers for those things which are most important to us. And to put it precisely, a heart that is in need of quieting and a heart that can function in such a way that we are not finally determined by the negative circumstances which are part of a fallen world ruled by the power of this world, the devil himself. Here's some of the suggestions, and there's some overlap here. I don't pretend to have a handle on all the false alternatives that are given to us as to how we can cope, but let me make a stab at it this morning. To begin with, the world would say escape. Escape through entertainment. Escape through getting away from your normal routine. Escapism. And part of that has to do, of course, with amusing ourselves. Neil Postman wrote a book probably 40 or 50 years ago entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. He's not a believer as far as I know, but he hit the nail on the head how we just zone out. I'm not saying we shouldn't have some entertainment in our lives. I don't think he did either in the book. But we go more and more. Isn't that kind of true of our day and time? Where people are going more and more looking for something as a diversion so that they can cope with life. That's the world's way. We know that the Lord has a better way, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But escapism, getting away. Optimism, uh, the idea that there will be an inevitable evolution to a better life. Mankind is glad, gladly and gradually evolving. Don't you get tired of hearing about evolution and evolving? We know that this world is designed by God to be like it was in the beginning. Sin has come and corrupted the world. The whole creation's creation 
Romans 8 says, groans for relief, groans for the revelation of the sons of God. What is that talking about? Groans for the return of Jesus Christ when those of us who know Jesus will be like Jesus in every way and will rise and meet him in the air and then we'll join him in the establishment of his millennial kingdom on earth. And the world is going to be made new. Not just we, the whole world is going to be renewed and the world is eager. The earth I'm talking about is eager for such a thing. I was thinking about attempts in our own national history to reach a place of continual progress to ultimate evolution of mankind. And I thought about a community that was formed in the 1840s in Ohio, on a river in Ohio, and it was a socialistic kind of experiment. And the result of that was it only lasted three years because these people who were so idealistic and progressive couldn't get along with each other, not to mention the fact that they didn't want to serve each other because they had come, for the most part, from the upper class, upper crust of socioeconomics in the U.S. and were accustomed to people waiting on them and taking care of them. So the utopian experience failed. Here's another way of dealing with our lack of peace, fatalism, not necessarily in an awful negative way, but it is negative. It can't help but be. I remember as a boy, I can't remember what movie it was associated with. Que Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The translation of those words. Just roll with it. It's going to happen. Just roll with it. No possible alterations. So just give up in a sense, but don't give up to the extent that you are bummed by. Also, stoicism, which could be in the category of fatalism, but it's where we join the British and have a stiff upper lip. We just endure it, whatever it is that's going on in our lives. And then when all these things have failed, escapism and optimism and fatalism, stoicism, People resort to mysticism. People resort to Eastern religions, Hinduism or forms of it, forms of Hinduism, those kinds of things. And because they know they cannot find relief in all these other things that are suggested to them by the world and the master of the world, then they just sort of get in a zone and they find that they can get some temporary relief in their mystical place. Well, all these things are alternatives that the world gives for the lack of peace in our lives. But there's really only one solution. Jesus is talking about it here in verse 1 of John 14. Stop letting your heart be troubled, and here's the solution. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in the gospel of God and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his son. That's what the 
meaning of this really is when you put it in this context. What the world promises and cannot deliver to us, Jesus Christ gives very clearly in the things which he says in this upper room discourse, which goes to the 16th chapter of John. But I'd like to pause just a moment and talk about the word gospel as it's connected with God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me begin by saying this. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So the power of God is available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It's the message that is embodied in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, almost in passing, and every part of the Bible is something that begs for our attention and understanding. And when Paul is giving the various parts of the armor of God, he comes to the feet and he says, with your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Latch on to that phrase, the gospel of peace. It's the gospel which produces peace. And it's a peace that is not conditioned upon circumstances. It's a peace which is given to us so that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how good they are or how poor they are, are somewhere in between those circumstances because our God is a sovereign God and He is in control of everything in the universe we can rest in Him. We can have that peace that passes understanding as we worship Him and rest in Him. The only solution is Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. This worked eventually for these men and all of us in this world, we, we're apt to try other things besides the Word of God. The appeal of Christ to us today is, let's give up all those counterfeit alternatives and let's recommit to be people who listen to what Jesus has to say, not just in the verse that we're looking at today, but in the entirety of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Bible, because it's replete the Bible is replete. It overflows with encouragement in this area. We're to believe in God. What are we to know about God? Who is God? We know from reading Hebrews 11 that those who believe must believe a couple of things. First of all, that God is, exists. He's existing. I don't think many people in a room like this at this time of the week would argue that there is a God, but not just any God, the God that is the God of Scripture. He's all-knowing, He's all-powerful, He's ever-present, He never changes, and on and on go the attributes of our God. He's an incredible God. I've already mentioned in the time of communion that He is a personal God. 
He is our Father. That's unique. The fatherhood of God is mentioned very few times in the Old Testament. But Jesus introduces us to him as our Father. He is our Father, isn't he? He is, through Jesus Christ, our Father. Because we have trusted Christ and what Christ has done for us, he becomes our Father. We are like a child to a father in our relationship with God the Father. And consequently, we are dependent upon Him. I love watching little children with their parents. It's one of the joys of being a pastor of a church that has children from the cradle all the way until they leave the nest. And to see, especially small children, how they really adore their parents, don't they? They look to their parents and depend on their parents. We are to be like that kind of child in relationship to God the Father. I don't remember at what point in my life when I transitioned from being a child in awe of my father and mother as parents and became a little skeptical and really more realistic knowing that they weren't all powerful. They loved me and cared for me, but when you're a baby, a little child, and growing up, you depend on your parents exclusively, don't you? And God wants that for us as our Father. We never outgrow being like little children in relationship to God the Father. This is why in what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you probably have heard this before, that the word for father would have been Abba, which was the name that a child would speak when that child began to be able to talk to their parent, their father, Abba. That's the relationship God would have for us to have that will extend not just throughout our personal histories on earth, but into eternity. He will always be our Father. And we must learn to lean on Him and trust Him. Another aspect or metaphor, if you will, in the Bible as it relates to us in relationship to our God is not only Father, but also He is our Master. We are to relate to him as a servant slash slave would to our master. And that would be to obey him. Not only dependence is to characterize our belief in Jesus and the Father, but also our obedience to them and to God the Father in particular. A couple of verses that I'd like to refer to before going on to look at what it means to have faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the God-man. One is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That stands in stark contrast to the philosophy of the world, doesn't it? Even the philosophy of some churches. We hunger and thirst after all kinds of things, but the only one thing that really matters is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And there is none righteous, no, not one. We know that's what the Bible says. But we know that Jesus Christ, if we know him, according to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he is our righteousness. 
what Christ has done for us has put us in a position of righteousness. And it's not our own innate righteousness. It's His righteousness, which He has given to us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Their hearts will be stilled. They will be at peace. This is true for us in our relationship to God the Father. We're to believe in God. There's great comfort in believing in God. Another verse is Psalm 112, verse 1, in the entire psalm. It says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands, who obeys him is really what it boils down to. Do we greatly delight in obeying the Lord? We delight in His relationship that we have with Him as our Abba, our Father. The intimacy of that and the dependence we have. We're to be like little children, but we're to be like servants, slaves, if you will. And whatever the Master says, we want to do it because we have such a heart to do it because we have been encouraged and have seen the importance of believing in God. Whatever He says. Isaiah chapter 48, 18, this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, get this, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. So, are you lacking peace today? Well, here's the test. Are you really depending on God the Father for everything? Believing that it's impossible to accomplish anything of lasting value except you depend on the Lord. And the beautiful thing about that truth is that you could be in any number of professions. We have no telling how many different callings in the professional world represented in a room with this many people. A lot of us have different professions. As long as those are not unethical and those are not designed to help us to gain ground in the community in, the, in terms of wanting to be loved by the community, but really we see ourselves on mission in our work. God sanctifies our work. He wants to use you. He's placed you where you are for that purpose, to glorify Him in all that you do. It's true for all of us. It's a wonderful thing to think about. And we want to obey the Lord. And the result is that we'll have peace like a river as the scripture says. Believe in God. We believe in His promises. This is a God, according to Psalm 27:10, and it's echoed in the book of Isaiah also. It says, if my father and my mother forget me, you, O Lord, will take me in. If I'm a waif, if I'm an urchin child, if nobody wants to have anything to do with me, God, you are my father. You will take me in. You're not going to leave me. You'll never leave me nor forsake me because I am your child. And I trust you for that, Lord. It's so encouraging for me to even talk about that, much less think about it. 
We are to believe in Jesus too. Look at the text. Let not your heart be troubled. Stop it is really what he's saying. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier. The commands to believe, and these are commands, are present tense commands. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing also in me. We are on a faith journey. And we are to continue to grow in our belief in our Lord and trusting Him. The people in Jesus' company, people like Thomas, people like Philip, people like Peter, they all had the problem of overcoming their own desire to be independent, at least in part, from Christ, their own goals for their lives, just like we do at times, and they wrestle with being fully obedient. 99% doesn't get it. God wants us to be fully obedient. He knows we're not going to be, but what He wants us to do is to develop a taste for what? For peace that can only come through hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus was with these men and He ministered to them. I think about how Peter in Mark chapter 10, after Jesus has interacted with a wealthy young man and He told the wealthy young man, if you want to follow me, you've got to sell everything and give it to the poor. And that just took the breath right out of Peter. And Peter never won to be silent and probably what he asked the Lord or said to the Lord was on the minds of the other apostles present after having observed this interaction that Jesus had had with the rich young man and watched him walk away. He said this, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus could have said at that point, precisely. That's what it means to follow me. To follow me by leaving everything behind and following me. He followed him. We are called to follow the Lord Jesus. And he calls us to come to him. In that famous invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and simply means yield yourself, surrender yourself to me, and you will learn of me that I am gentle and humble in heart. He will come as we come to him. He will give us what he promises. He says in John 10, we've seen this before, the 10th verse, speaking of Satan, he says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. An overflowing life. Eternal life. It's the word that's used repeatedly in the book of John that's translated into our word life. So we are to be such people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ too. We believe in Him. Let's think a little bit together before we finish our time today. 
about what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. There's no way we can look at everything that the writer says about Jesus, but there are some that I've selected. One from the 12th chapter, and this has to do with faith for sure, because faith is dependence on the Father, but dependence on Jesus, God the Father and God the Son, dependence upon both of them. And this is what the scripture says in Hebrews 12, verse 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross. Wow, what an endurance test he underwent. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Part of his dying for us, he took on the shame of being the representative sinner and all the humiliation of being stripped naked and spread-eagled on that cross and nailed to it and mocked by the people who perpetrated that dastardly event. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured this cross, despising the shame. And then what did he do? He sat down, the scripture says, at the right hand of the throne of God. He occupies that seat today, the right hand of the throne of God. In the book of Hebrews chapter 7, 25, this is what we read about Jesus. He lives to make intercession for us. We have a scenario that's recorded in the Old Testament book of Zechariah where the high priest Joshua has a charge leveled against him by Satan. Some sin had encroached upon Joshua, he, uh, this high priest, and he had sinned. And where is Satan? Johnny on the spot. The devil, according to Revelation 12, lives to make accusation against us. That's why we need Jesus to make intercession for us, to pray for us. And so what is Jesus doing when he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? It's a place of authority. It's a place of honor. But it's a place of work on our behalf. He pleads our case. He reminds the Father when Satan accuses us. He reminds the Father, Father, remember the agreement which you and I made, the covenant which you have made and I have made with those sheep who follow me, that once they give their lives to Christ, then they are forever forgiven of their sin. And I paid for that sin that Mike Woods just committed, Lord. I paid for it. And so Satan's accusing him, but I'm standing in the gap for him. That's true of every one of us in this room who know Jesus Christ. That is incredible. We have that kind of Lord to place our faith in. Does that bring tranquility to your mind and your heart? We need it. All of us do without exception. We need a quieting of our hearts. And that is comes by our faith in the Lord, the Father, and also Jesus, the Son. To go one step further, when we think about Jesus as our 
priest, as it were, our intercessor. In the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the Bible says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet without sin. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is He who sympathizes. The word sympathize literally is a compound word in the New Testament language. Soon, which means with, and pasco, which means suffered. He suffers with us. In some way, He enters into that. He suffered as a human being so He could be our Savior. There had to be a sacrifice for our humanness in the sense of our sinfulness as human beings in like form. And that was in the person of Jesus Christ, which enables him because he understands from his own experience as a human being what it's like to suffer in temptation. My, my. In that last verse of that section that I just mentioned from Hebrews 4 says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. That's peace, isn't it? Confidence. Not nonchalant, flippant kind of faith, but faith that is focused on the person of Jesus and we've seen so far in the book of John some statements which Jesus made himself. Make no mistake about it, he knew he was God. People try to say he was not God. I was talking to a friend yesterday. He's a relatively new believer. And he was born into a Jewish family. He was serious about his pursuit of Judaism. And he came to know Jesus as his Messiah not too many months ago. And he was witnessing to his best man in his wedding on vacation just a couple of weeks ago. And in the conversation as they were talking about this new commitment that this man has made to Jesus, the man said, how can you believe Jesus is God? He never said he is God. Well, thank God this new brother is eagerly eating up the word of God. And he began to show him places where Jesus, in effect, says, I'm God. In the book of John, I am the bread of life, he says in the sixth chapter. In the eighth chapter, he says, I am the light of the world. In the ninth chapter, he repeats himself, I am the light of the world. In the tenth chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In the eleventh chapter, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In the book of John in the 8th chapter. Again, this is sort of the big statement Jesus makes about his identity as God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He used the very words of God the Father that God used in the burning bush to identify himself to Moses so Moses could tell Pharaoh and the people in captivity, the descendants of Abraham, I am sent me. Jesus knew who he was. He still does know who he is. And we need to enjoy the fact that we have God in the flesh who still bears human flesh, by the way. He didn't just jump into a human skin 
like a costume for the 33 years he walked on earth, he still has that and wears it, I know, with great, great joy because it's a picture of how he has been who he is on our behalf. I close with this statement from the book of Deuteronomy. It's in the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy. And rather than try to quote it, I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 11. And it begins with verse 26. And it's a message which Moses is giving to the children of Israel as they're on the eve of walking into the promised land. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I'm commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. And it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan west of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah opposite Gilgal beside the oaks of Morah? For you are about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you and you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I'm setting before you today. This is God's calling on our lives, to believe in Him, to make a lifelong goal to know God, because we know it's in knowing Him that we have eternal life. It's in knowing Him that we grow and we become useful to Him and to other people in a way that will echo in eternity. We have an option as believers to obey what he says, and the result of that will be blessing, or to disobey, and the result of that will be a cursing. Another way of saying that would be being disciplined by God. As we finish this morning, I know there's someone here probably who's saying, well, you just don't know my situation, Mike, and I don't. And I'm not in any way your judge when it comes to dealing with the trouble in your life. But I do know what Job says is true, and I'm going to then say what God says. Remember what Job says in Job 14:1. after he lost his family, he lost his fortune, he lost his fame, he lost everything. He said, man born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. That was an expression of a man who had lost everything. But at the end of the book of Job, after he had been reintroduced or maybe introduced to God in a way that he had yet to grasp, he had fallen into a trap in the 34th chapter this is what he said. It profits a man nothing to serve the Lord. Look, we shouldn't worry if it profited us anything to do it. He deserves it all, but good for God and good for us that he has given us blessings immeasurable in him. But at the end of 
the story that's recorded of Job. In the 42nd chapter, he said, until now my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, that would be my own selfishness, and repent in dust and ashes. That's where God wants us to reach an understanding because in that recognition and that repentance that follows comes a great lifting of the burden that crushes us. And Jesus says this as he finishes the beautiful upper room discourse, the 33rd verse of the 16th chapter. I'd like you to turn and look at that. It's a good place for us to finish. John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Where are you if you know Jesus? You're in Him and He's in you. And He will lead you and guide you and give you peace in the middle of any kind of crisis you have and show you the purpose of it. The purpose is so that you will be more in love with God because you'll be drawn to Him. Your trouble presses you into Him and you grow in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this day. It's a day You have made. We rejoice in You in it. And help us, Lord, to take to heart the importance of really believing in You, having faith. Teach us to be men and women who gladly depend on You for everything and gladly obey You and do not see Your commandments as a burden but as a means to freedom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.